As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Hey everybody, welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show. Tim McMaster here along with Ken Rosenthal. This is our mailbag edition. We bring it to you every two weeks in the offseason, every week once we get started with baseball, which hopefully we will eventually do. We are recording on Monday, February 28th, and publishing this as quickly as possible because who knows what's going to change with this lockout from minute to minute at this point. It is deadline day for the league and the players to reach a deal without losing regular season games. That, according to Rob Manfred. So before we get into the mailbag, Ken, your story over the weekend, I thought, included a great analogy on the owner's side of negotiations. You said, Many of the league's concessions, a draft lottery, provisions to limit service time, manipulation, the amount of money it is willing to devote to a pre-arbitration bonus pool are just slightly above the inclusion of floor mats by a car dealer in the purchase of a new vehicle. Heaven forbid the owners negotiate the actual price of the car. Now, that was before Sunday's day of negotiations. Um, But with that as colorful background... Today, they say is deadline day. Do you believe if, a deal, if, if progress is made today, if a deal is struck in the next 48, 72 hours, will they really take games away? No, I don't believe that. And if they are making progress, let's say, Tim, that they're 80% of the way there. And it's hard to quantify these things. I get it. But just theoretically, they're really going to shut down the start of the season because, oh, sorry, we ran out of time, which is an artificial deadline to begin with. It's the owner's imposed deadline, just as the lockout is the owner's imposed lockout. So they don't have to abide by that, not by any stretch of the imagination. And I would suggest they probably can go two or three more days. Who knows? You can even cut spring training to three weeks. It's not ideal. You'd have to start the season with expanded rosters. But if they are making progress, if they are getting closer, then I would imagine, yes, all things are possible. Now, in speaking to a number of player agents over the last few days, a number of them feel that this is essentially the MLB playbook that teams follow in arbitration. You go to the end, you go right to the last minute, and then you cut the deal. Now, this is 
much different situation than an arbitration case. It's much more complex, much more layered. But that is the nature of a deadline, right? That these are how things get done in baseball, not just at arbitration time, but draft signing time, the trade deadline, all of these things. So from that perspective, yes, there is hope. And as long as they're talking, there is still hope. At the same time, as we reported this morning, Monday morning, Evan Drellick and I, a player told us last night there is a long way to go. That's a player involved with the negotiations. So by all accounts, that seems to be the case. We'll just have to see how it plays out the rest of today on Monday. And we'll see if indeed this is a real deadline, but I don't believe for a second it is if they are making progress. If they are not making progress and if the league just gets frustrated and says we're not going anywhere here, yes, they're going to start canceling games. It's going to be an interesting day for sure. People will be updating Twitter constantly for your updates and Evan's updates and all that stuff. Uh, We got a lot of great questions this week and too many, actually. So some of the questions that are not lockout related, I have tucked away because they'll still be relevant next time we get together. So we'll get some of those in. But we have some of those in this as well, but a lot of lockout stuff. So let's get to it right now. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved next week or get your voice on the show, call our Monday Mailbag Hotline. We'd love to hear your voice at 646-543-7072. You can also email us, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Let's get straight to it, starting with one of those voicemails, Ken. Hey, Ken. Chris Binion, coming Georgia. The question is regarding the lockout. I keep hearing continually that the union lost the collective bargaining agreement in 2016 handily. And Tony Clark's fingerprints are all over that quote-unquote loss. Uh, If you could elaborate on why the players lost that negotiation uh, so, so thoroughly and why, if they lost in their eyes or the industry's eyes, uh, why is the leadership still the same leadership that's leading them in the current negotiation? Chris, thanks for the question. And why they lost the negotiation, there has been a lot written along those lines. And essentially, the criticism of the deal from the outside, and even from within, from certain player agents, is that the union did not focus enough on the major issues, such as the luxury tax and the thresholds and the penalties, and paid more attention to issues such as how many seats a player would get on the bus, living conditions, all those types of things. Now, that's an oversimplification. That is not exactly how it went down. But it is fair to say that the thresholds were not driven high enough by the union and that they did not make some of the gains that they're trying for now and did not even attempt to make some of those gains. And what happened was, The collective bargaining agreement that resulted left, again, room for the clubs and the owners to exploit the system, do what they've been doing in a perfectly legal manner. There's nothing wrong from a legal sense or from the standpoint of the CBA with the way they've acted over the years. But what the union is trying to do now is build in mechanisms so that they're in a safer position with regard to going forward. Now, the second question is an interesting one, too. Why is it, if this 2016 CBA was such a failure, is Tony Clark still running the union? And the difference now 
between the union structure and what it was then is the presence of Bruce Meyer as the lead negotiator. He was hired after this, and he was brought in to be that guy, to be the person who negotiates this deal to counter Dan Hallam, his counterpart at MLB, and to give the union an experienced person in this field to obviously, hopefully get them in a better position, at least from their standpoint. So that is the difference, the change that they made. Certainly, there was talk at the time among certain players about removing Tony Clark, but that talk never gained enough momentum to actually generate a coup of sorts. What it did result in was the hiring of Bruce Meyer. Yeah, and we'll see how Bruce Meyer comes out of this uh, hopefully soon. Uh, all right, so kind of one shot at the player side from Chris Binion to start things off. Here's one on the owner's front from Jordan. He says, hey, Ken, I'm legitimately inter- interested to hear from the owner's perspective why they feel justified in their negotiation tactics with the players' union. I understand that they're fighting to keep the revenue amounts that they've become accustomed to in previous years, but how can they claim to be negotiating in good faith when their proposals are widely seen as unreasonable? Putting aside your personal opinion, how do you believe the average owner would convince the average fan that their side is fair and appropriate? Wow, that's an interesting question. So what you're asking me to do is give the owner's perspective on what they've offered, on why they think this is a better deal for players. And at least in what they tell us, their spokespeople, they do believe that. Now, how much they sincerely believe it and whether they're just pushing their Agenda, that's difficult to say, but this is the argument that they present. The minimum salary will be higher. They've proposed that. The pre-arbitration bonus pool, an idea conceived by the union, is something that they've accepted. The difference there is how much money will be devoted to that pre-arbitration bonus pool to reward the best young players who are still covered by the minimum salary. That's the idea there. And there are other things as well that the owners believe are addressing player concerns. The draft lottery, which is an anti-tanking measure, that is one. The two sides differ over whether there are some other additional elements that should be included along with the creation of a lottery that would further disincentivize teams from tanking. Also, service time manipulation. There will be something in this deal. We don't know what yet. We don't know what will be agreed upon that will address that problem, and it is a problem, to some degree. Now, how effectively it does it, what the terms will be, that, of course, is still to be negotiated. And the owners would also suggest that a universal DH is something that would favor the players. It's something the players have long wanted. And that even expanded playoffs, which is something that the owners obviously want badly because it will get them at least $100 million per year, well, in theory, that money should help the players too. It should trickle down to them. Higher the revenues, the more money that will be theoretically available to players. Players will also get an extra round to earn a percentage of the gate. And theoretically, they could use some of what they do in the playoffs in arbitration cases. So that too would benefit the players. All of these things are indeed gains from the union's perspective to some degree. It depends on the terms. At the same time, the union does not believe that these are enough of a creation, an impact to really change things for them in the way that they want things to be changed. 
All right, so we've heard kind of a owner's perspective question, player's perspective. How about the agents? This one from Jason. He says, hope this email sees that a deal has been completed when you read this. Sorry, Jason. However, from following these labor <laughs> negotiations with you and all of the great people at The Athletic, I've noticed the top players negotiating are all Scott Boris agents. Well, they're not all, but a lot of them are. Which has me wondering how much of the CBA being negotiated is really Boris versus MLB. If Boris is the driving force, why doesn't the players union make him a chief negotiator for them? As always, thanks for your time. Jason, this is a topic that has come up with a number of people off the record in recent weeks, months, even years. How much influence does Scott Boris have over the players union? Right now, clearly... He has five players, five clients on the eight-man executive subcommittee. That's a lot of players for one committee, and that's the biggest committee that the union has. But at the same time, there are 750 members of this union. Actually, more than that, there are 1,200 members if you count 40-man roster, which you have to. Any one player is only going to have so much influence, though certainly you've seen Scherzer, Cole. They've been in the room negotiating. Marcus Semyon was in. Briefly, he is a Boris client as well, and there are others indeed on that executive subcommittee. Zach Britton is another. So clearly, when an agent, a single agent, has that many players on the executive subcommittee, he's going to have some influence. And those players might not agree with him on every point, but they can certainly and certainly will hear his point of view and perhaps present his point of view. That said, the union strongly, and I cannot say this strongly enough, strongly denies that Scott Boris is running the union. Bruce Meyer, as the lead negotiator, he is running these negotiations. Tony Clark is still running the union. How much influence Boris has is open to debate. And again, the union denies it, but because of the presence of those players and because Scott Boris is such a vocal figure in this game, a number of people on both sides, both the players and owner sides, believe he does have an undue amount of influence. Maybe it's just talk. The union says it is just talk. But that perception does exist among some people. All right. Uh, this is a f- kind of a fun one, Ken. We'll get away from the serious stuff. It's still related to the lockout. It's from Doug. He says, let's say MLB totally stonewalls the players. They refuse to raise the CBT more than a couple of million bucks and insist on increasing the penalties for going over it. Does the union have any leverage in playing their own season without the owners? I know it sounds nuts, but I'm curious. Let's say the union said, we're going to group players by their former teams. We'll create uniforms and call the teams by their cities instead of team names. We'll find independent or college parks to play in. We'll stream the games ourselves for a fee. <laughs> Granted, it wouldn't be the same, but video production and streaming makes public distribution of their games a lot easier than it was years ago with television networks needed and millions of dollars of equipment. So A, is it possible? B, would it create any leverage for the players? Doug, there is such a thing called a contract. The players have contracts individually with the clubs. The players' union has a contract, a collective bargaining agreement, that is negotiated with the owners and the league. Now, that contract does not exist right now, but there are guaranteed contracts and other contracts that do exist with individual players. The Mets and Max Scherzer, I can go right down the line. I believe, without being an attorney, even though I'm asked to be an attorney, like all of us in these times, that those contracts would preclude anything along the lines of what you're talking about. Now, we had a question, I believe it might have been last week, about whether players can participate in independent leagues during a lockout or strike, and in foreign leagues, such as the one in Japan, 
during a lockout or strike. There is a packet that the union issued to players at the start of the lockout, maybe shortly before, that addressed those particular issues. And the union's position is that players can play in an independent league if they want. Union members can, 40-man roster players. And that they can play in foreign leagues if they want as well, such as Japan and Korea. And they cite as an example, as precedent, the 2004-05 NHL work stoppage in which a large number of players chose to play internationally. Now, I don't know how the league would view that. I don't know how all that would roll. But that, to me, would seem a more realistic scenario than the union starting what we would call a league of their own. (laughs) Well, yeah, well named. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Uh, all right, we're going back to voicemail now, and we're getting away from the lockout for a little bit. Hey, guys. My name's Justin. I live in Chicago. Um, I got a question about the Cubs. Um, with the addition of the uh, DH coming into the National League, do you see the Cubs having a reunion with any of their former bats now that it allows someone like Schwarber or Rizzo to not have to play first base or outfield every day? And how do you see this affecting the market afterwards? Will National League teams be more inclined to get bats, or will it be the same between them and the American League? Love the show. Hope to hear my question. Thanks, guys. Justin, thanks. That's a good question. I don't believe the Universal DH will affect the Cubs' decisions on guys like Schwarber and Rizzo in any way. What would affect the decision would be those players' positions in the marketplace, what they might command as free agents, Money, in other words. Would the Cubs, in a theoretical world, like to have both those guys? I'm sure they would. But one reason they chose this course was because they wanted to get leaner. They also wanted to kind of retool on the fly. And they didn't want to commit $70 million at the time to Anthony Rizzo. And it looks like they might be proven right on that one because I don't believe Anthony Rizzo is going to get $70 million. So the other part of this question to me is more interesting. And I do believe teams like the Cubs in the National League will look at players that they otherwise might not have because the DH is there. And that is true for teams in the American League as well. Of course, they have that option right now. You may see a corner player, first baseman, third baseman, right fielder, left fielder, who is not necessarily a great defender, become more appealing to those National League teams now. A guy that they would not have necessarily considered before, but now maybe... Eh, stick him in the field a little bit, but use him primarily as a DH or rotate him. And that will help those players financially. That's one appeal of the universal DH from the union's perspective. There's another school of thought, and I've written about this a little, that says most teams rotate their DHs anyway. There aren't many 
David Ortiz types, even J.D. Martinez types, guys who are essentially DHs playing anymore. Those guys, for the most part, are really not part of the game. Nelson Cruz is another one. What you see is more what teams like the Yankees do. Well, they'll put Stanton DH one day, Judge another, LeMahieu kind of giving guys a breather that way. And maybe if that is indeed the case, and I expect it will continue to be, the impact of the universal DH from a financial perspective is not as great as you think. But it should help those players who might not have attracted interest from National League teams, but now will look more appealing because the DH is available. DH, one new rule in the National League. Here's a question about another rule or the possibility of one down the road from Blake Morgan, who says, who's behind the curtain pushing for the automated strike zone? I don't seem to hear many hitters really complaining about this, and I definitely don't hear pitchers calling for this change, especially when factoring in the amount of strikes a quality catcher can steal for a pitcher. Sure, bad calls are made each game, but they largely even out in my unscientific observations over the course of time. This seems to be a made-up problem that doesn't need to be fixed. Blake, if you ever watch a postseason game and follow along on Twitter, I don't believe you would look at it as a made-up problem when fans are complaining about every third call. So there are issues with the calling of the strike zone. By and large, umpires do a great job, the plate umps, and maybe it is something of a made-up issue, one that doesn't need to be addressed. It's certainly perhaps not as important as some other issues, regarding the game on the field. Where it's coming from, I don't know exactly. I would agree that you don't hear players talk about it all that much, hitters and pitchers. I don't even know that the front office people that I speak with talk about it that much. I don't haven't heard many complaints along these lines or many discussions along these lines. But the league certainly seems to think it would be a way of taking the pressure off the umpires bringing more efficiency to the calling of balls and strikes. And frankly, in my mind, this is going to happen as soon as they are comfortable with the technology that it is calling balls and strikes accurately and not kind of producing wild and crazy results. So yes, in the future, I do think it will happen. I actually think some umpires, maybe a lot of umpires, will welcome this because it will take that intense scrutiny off them a scrutiny that often they perceive as unfair because the camera angles aren't necessarily where they ideally would be. So we'll see how it plays out. But if you're asking me if there is an internal clamoring within the sport among the people who play the game and make the decisions regarding the rosters, front offices, I don't know that there is. I can't wait until they do make the change and Twitter starts complaining about the robots because that that is inevitable. That's happening. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next question comes from uh, voicemail. Here's Fred. Uh, hey, guys. Hey, Ken. My name is Fred. I live in Los Angeles. I just read an, a great article on The Athletic about the role of the manager in baseball, and it was a, a very interesting rundown of the roles. But one thing that kind of occurred to me is, I honestly, of all the talks this offseason about how much players make and these long-term deals and should we go for seven years or ten years, I have zero clue, and I'm a huge baseball fan, of how much managers make and what their typical contracts are like, and are they in a union? Uh, would you mind uh, letting your listeners know uh, what's the deal with all of that? And uh, great show, guys. Keep up the great work. Fred, first of all, that was a great story on the managers. It was a combined effort by Fabian Ardia. 
Cody Stavenhagen and Will Salmon, three of our youngest writers, and they did a fabulous job on it. I highly recommend that story on the evolution of managers. To your question about how much they make, the range is from anywhere in the $750,000, $800,000 range to $6 million, $7 million. I believe Madden at $6 million might be the highest paid. I'm not actually sure. Don't quote me on that. But I don't know that there's a manager making much more than that. So that is kind of the area we're talking about. They are not members of a union. They do not have a union. Some of them were former players and are past members of the Major League Baseball Players Association. But they are considered part of management and they are paid by the clubs and they do not negotiate as part of a union. They do almost all of them, if not all of them, have individual agents who help them negotiate their contracts. But it's not a situation where they can go to the union and ask for help. All right, a couple more questions. Bob Nutting keeps coming up in this show, Ken, as you know, an owner that his fan base doesn't like. And here's another one via voicemail. There's been a lot made during the lockout about the union's need to maintain solidarity among its large and diverse membership. But I'm curious about the relationship among the owners. Take revenue sharing as just one example here. Ken, I believe you contributed to an article before last season that found, among some other interesting facts, that teams like the Pirates take in more dollars in revenue sharing than they spend on payroll in some years. It seems to me that those kinds of economic realities have to be absolutely maddening to the ownership groups from teams like the Red Sox, Yankees, and Dodgers. If you were a fly on the wall in the owners' internal discussions, what do you think it would be like? Are Bob Nutting and owners like him the unwelcome uncles at the dinner table? Or am I underestimating the unity that actually exists among that group? Good question. And you're not underestimating the unity that supposedly exists. There are differences between high-revenue teams and low-revenue teams. And there is resentment among certain executives with certain high-revenue teams about the fact that teams such as the Pirates, Marlins, Rays, and A's, those are the four that were the subject of a union grievance, those teams do not spend enough of their revenue-sharing money on Major League Payroll. That's what the grievance and its pending was about. So those resentments, yes, they do exist. And frankly, the only real way to address them is through a payroll floor, some kind of minimum. And it wouldn't be a hard floor, just as we do not have a hard cap in Major League Baseball. My thought has always been put the same mechanisms in the floor as you have with the luxury tax. So if a team falls below a certain proposed number, then they pay penalties in some fashion. There are problems with that idea. One, it never got off the ground in negotiations, these negotiations, because the owners tied it to a lower luxury tax threshold, and the players wanted no part of that, even though the owner's reasoning was we would use the penalty money to fund the teams up to $100 million. So it's not happening even though, in my opinion, it probably should happen. And yes, there are questions about how you would make those teams spend the money or get those teams to spend the money. Does it come from central baseball, that additional money? Does it come from the luxury tax thresholds or penalties? I'm not exactly sure how that would work. And even some on the player's side have questioned whether it would actually force those teams to spend. I had one person tell me, instead what those teams might do is simply take on high-priced players in trades in order to get a couple of prospects attached. So effectively, it would not be changing the market. Those players already would be signed. 
the teams that we're talking about, the low revenue teams, would simply be acquiring them as part of a transaction. So other than that, I don't know what you can do to address this. I'd like to see some incentives put in, as the union has proposed, to persuade teams to try a little harder, these small market teams. And for instance, if you finish 500, you get a draft pick. If you bake the postseason, you get another draft pick. These are things the union has proposed. I think they're good ideas. Baseball, Major League Baseball, does not like the ideas because they don't want to see the essence of the draft system change. And the essence of it is the worse you are, the higher you draft. They believe that if you instituted these kinds of incentives, the teams that for whatever reason are at the bottom would be even more removed from competing any time in the near future. I say incentivize those teams, but whatever. It, it doesn't seem to be a position the owners are particularly comfortable with. I'll be interested to see where that lands once we have an agreement. Yeah, those teams need some kind of motivation, that's for sure. We have one more question. It comes from Chris Jenkins. I was curious as to why they didn't discuss a new CBA during the 2020 shutdown. They had ample time to discuss it. Seemed they were more worried about starting up the abbreviated season. They were arguing over numbers of games played. I know the NHL got theirs done before the restart up plan. Curious thought. Chris, if you remember, they couldn't even get a deal for the 2020 shortened season, the pandemic season. What happened, because they could not get a deal, is that Rob Manfred, the commissioner, imposed a 60-game season, as was his right under another agreement that they had made. So if you couldn't get a deal then, you weren't going to get a bigger deal on the future CBA at that moment. It just wasn't possible. And that is really what this comes down to. If you look back at those negotiations and how poorly they went, remember, baseball perhaps could have gotten back earlier, though Manfred denies that, could have gotten back earlier, really taken the national consciousness at a time when no other sport was playing, but they couldn't. They didn't. Now, Manfred now says we couldn't have because of the health restrictions. Perhaps that's true. I don't know exactly. But that fight was sort of the precursor to this one. And this one has much higher stakes. So that's why it didn't happen then. They couldn't even get the one deal. They sure as heck weren't going to get two. That's when it became very clear that we were going to be stuck where we are right now was during that. I mean, it was clear before yes. that probably, but that was the, uh, the exclamation point. All right. Great questions. As always, uh, keep them coming over the next couple of weeks. Hopefully we can get away from the lockout completely in the next couple of weeks, but you can call us 646-543-7072, TA Baseball Show at gmail.com to email us. Keep coming back to the Athletic Baseball Show all week long. Derek Van Riper, Eno Saris, and Britt Giroli, they're all part of the feed now as well. They call it the 3 0 Show, uh, and they dove into baseball's future last week. Check out that episode. It came out on Thursday talking about what baseball will look like in 2052. Think about how many CBAs we have between now and then. On Starkville last week, Brett Phillips was on, and he refreshed to all of us into remembering that baseball is fun when it's played. So check that one out as well. Check out all the great writing being done by Ken and Evan on the lockout and everything else, all the different sports at The Athletic. You can join right now for just $1 per month for six months. To get that deal, go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. Ken, I know you're a busy guy. Thanks for joining us for a brief time to answer these questions, and I'm sure you're going to get right back at it. 
Thank you, Tim. Talk to you next week. We'll talk to everybody next week. Bye-bye.